Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back, first-time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. If you believe in the importance of Counterpunch, of alternative media, now is the time to be a supporter. So many of our media outlets are dying out, uh, just becoming defunct, breaking up for various reasons, and now is not the time to be seeding ground. So uh, get out the digital wallet or whatever the uh, device of choice is, make a donation through the PayPal, get a subscription to the print magazine, buy a t-shirt, do whatever you got to do. Supporting Counterpunch is really important. I, uh, I do this podcast, but I'm also a supporter. I also have a subscription myself. So anyway, uh, I really do appreciate those of you supporting and considering that moving forward. Uh, so let me uh, get my guest on the line here. I'm really excited to talk to him. I just met him about a few minutes ago, and I know we're going to have a really great conversation. Lots to discuss. Andam Gebregiorgis is with me today. Andam has recently announced his uh, intention to challenge for the 16th district the 16th Congressional District here in New York that is going up against the loathsome incumbent Elliot Engel. Uh, Andam's got the website Andam4NY. That's A-N-D-O-M-F-O-R-N-Y.com. Same on Twitter at Andam4NY. So much to discuss. Andam, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell us what you're doing here. Why are you running? Where do you come from? Who are you? Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, glad to be here. My name is Andam Gebregiorgis. I'm from Mount Vernon, New York, originally. Uh, I'm a first-generation American. My parents uh, immigrated from Eritrea uh, in the early 1970s. I guess then it was part of Ethiopia. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Mount Vernon. Uh, I went to schools in Mount Vernon, public school in Mount Vernon, and then a uh, private school in Riverdale. And after graduating from college, I came back and I was a public school special education teacher. And the reality of uh, public, public education in the Bronx where I was teaching, it, it, you know, it has a long-term impact on you just seeing really what's happening in these under-resourced apartheid schools. Um, and I carried that with me throughout my educational career. And recently, just seeing the progressive wave that happened in the midterm elections in 2018 and having the understanding and awareness of the kind of, you know, uh, yeah, let me just let me be as kind as possible. You know, the type of representative we have here in uh, District 16 um, you know, I knew that now was the time for us to make a change, that it was necessary to get a war, war hawk imperialist uh, representative out of our district, which is D plus 24, um, which really holds progressive, uh, the progressive values much more so than uh, is represented by the district. And, you know, having been a teacher, I, I definitely saw the need for alternative representation in the district. Um, Elliot Engel is someone who has you know, consistently, consistently voted um, to increase military spending every single uh, time the uh, appropriations authorizations come up. Um, and having been a teacher in some of the most under-resourced schools in New York, I definitely know that that money could be going to a much better cause um, than bombs abroad. I really appreciate any candidate who centers 
issues of war and imperialism. And frankly, even using the word imperialism, I think, indicates a level of political consciousness that really uh, is exciting and gratifying for me. And that's part of the reason why I reached out to you and to speak with you tonight. So let's start with that. I mean, you've talked already in just the first couple of minutes here about issues of war and imperialism. It seems to be one of the areas that you are really defining yourself and your uh, ideological outlook. So talk to me a little bit about the issues of war, the military-industrial complex, and imperialism, and specifically what I'm getting at is why those issues are being centered in your campaign, where, say, in other campaigns, including progressive ones, they're not. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, you you said that I'm centering it in my campaign, and, and I'm making it, divine, it a defining feature. But really, I'm just responding to America's history and America's legacy. America has made imperialism a defining feature um, of itself from its founding. Uh, This country was founded on settler colonialism and land theft, um, which was concretized through white supremacy. And we saw that then with indigenous genocide and African slavery. And, you know, those structures have not been dismantled. I mean, we saw the reparations hearing uh, the other day. So it's, it's really not something that I'm I'm reacting to the reality that exists in our communities and the reality of our history. Um, and it's something that we need to address and we need to be truthful about if we're actually going to make uh, bring about solutions and positive change. So when we talk about war, when we talk about imperialism um, and we talk about foreign policy, these are not things that I see as, uh, you know, disentangled from our domestic policy. These things are, are inextricably linked, again, not because not only because of our history, but also just because of how our budgeting and, and appropriations work. Um, money that is going to be going towards, uh, you know, Saudi Arabian weapons uh, is money that we know could be going towards something else in the discretionary budget. So, you know, it's extremely important in this campaign, especially um, because we know that Elliot Engel has been someone who has, uh, you know, constantly uh, been willing and more, not even been willing, been happy and excited to uh, invest in the military industrial complex. He has not seen an intervention that he that he doesn't like. Um, and it's something that, you know, we've seen started with Iraq. And even if you even if, you know, we give him the grace to say maybe he was mis you know, he was misled and lied to, even though obviously all of us were out in the streets in 2003, I was in high school, uh, you know, we had school cut day and we, we went down to Union Square, um, all of us high school students, and we marched against the war. But even if you're going to give him the grace and say, all right, he made a mistake, we've seen countless other times where it's the same, same interventionist attitude. Um, and, and that's a problem. And that's a problem that we have that we have with our representative in our district. But yeah, imperialism and uh, the military industrial complex is central to what we're doing um, and what we want to dismantle here uh, in order to have actually a country and a community where we have not only the financial resources to be able to make uh, progressive change and enact the ambitious social programs that we want, but also that we can so that we can live in cooperation uh, with people around the world. And that's not something that we're able to do right now. So you're running for the for the uh, congressional seat as a Democrat. You're challenging mm-hmm. 
a nominal Democrat, but this mm-hmm. Democrat is pr- uh, probably as far right as m- maybe most of the right wing of the Democratic Party could be. I mean, I could probably single out maybe one or two that are worse, but I mean, really about as far right as it gets in the Democratic Party. And my my question to you is, what exactly are you up against when you go up against Elliot Engel? Because it's not simply up against a powerful and well-connected Democrat, is it? Yeah, I mean, you're you're going up against a lot. You're going up against, obviously, as you just alluded to, um, the establishment and the money that comes with that. You're going up against industries which are profiting off of the inhumane decisions that Elliot Engel has been making in Congress. Um, and so we, we see we see the problematic influence that money has in politics when we look at the records of of you know congressional representatives like Elliot Engel, um, but more so you know like I think uh, and I, I I hope this tide is actually changing. I think people sometimes you know they they tend to conflate experience with um, you know the ability to actually enact positive change. And, you know, just because someone has experience doesn't mean that that experience is going to lend them to do the right thing. Um, In fact, a lot of times this experience is actually just hardening the beliefs that they already had and making them more likely to do it. So, you know, a lot of or or it's an experience that they know how to be slimy bastards. (laughs) Yes, I was trying to be diplomatic, but but yeah, I mean, totally. And it's, you know, people have doubled down on this and they see that they keep getting elected, uh, you know, following these sort of, you know, militaristic worldviews that they have, and they don't have an incentive to change. So, you know, we have to bring that change to them. And I think foreign policy is sometimes a difficult thing to dis- to discuss. Um, I think in general, you know, here in the U.S., we don't, we, we obviously don't come to, haven't come to terms with uh, the legacy of, of imperialism and slavery, uh, even in our, we haven't come to the terms, come to terms with slavery in our own country. We're not going to come to terms with imperialism abroad. Um, but I think we, we actually have the ability to, to make strides in this because um, I think people and society in general are, are, as the world is becoming more globalized, information is, you know, more readily available. And, you know, there's just so many pop- populations and communities are much more diverse than they were before. Um, I think people are just generally more aware of the problematic uh, influence that we have in the rest of the world. And they also see that, you know, especially as income inequality has just drastically uh, widened since the 1970s, I think people realize that a change is necessary. Absolutely. And Engel is interesting because not only when you say you're going up against, you know, all of these powerful interests that he's connected to, that's true. And all of the material damage that he has done to people, uh, both in this country and around the world, absolutely true. But he also represents something symbolically, uh, and I think maybe best embodied by his absolutely uh, just, just unethical attacks against Ilhan Omar, uh-huh. against Ocasio-Cortez and other, uh, or excuse me, Rashida Tlaib and mm-hmm. others uh, who have been vocal on the issue of Palestine, who have been vocal around issues of apartheid in, in Palestine, of the mm-hmm. settler colonial state, of the occupation of Gaza, etc., etc. Uh, uh, so my question is, when you're going up against Engel and you're going up against all these forces, aren't you also going up against a, the the decades of power he represents? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you put it. I mean, it's you're totally right. You're going up against all of that, and that's why I think it's extremely important to be able to build coalitions and mobilize people to understand that you know we're this is a fight that we're all in together. 
um, and really let people understand what the truth is with what's happening uh, abroad and also in our communities. You know, a lot of these things are really about framing um, and being able to frame issues in a way that people can feel a humane connection. Um, sadly, especially when it comes to, you know, I, I think pa Palestine is a perfect example. Um, you know, uh, when when you're receiving so much propaganda, uh, you know, from a young age in this country, I mean, like, uh, you know, naturally one is, unless they're exposed to something else, they're going to think something, they're going to think maybe negatively uh, or maybe not see the total truth about what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Um, and I think we actually have an opportunity to expose realities um, to, to people in our district. Um, and that's by approaching it from a completely authentic and transparent way about what's going on. We're not going to be tiptoeing around the issues. We're going to speak from the heart. We're going to speak to the truth. Um, and we're going to speak in a way that brings people together around humane empathy. Uh, and I think that's what's necessary, particularly in District 16, because we're such a diverse district, both racially and socioeconomically. I think people are able to understand that there are challenges and systems that we, we are up against in America that we need to um, really tear down. And I think that if we're able to make the connections between the challenges we have here in the U.S. and unite that with the challenges of not only the working class, but people of color all throughout the world, um, I think there's really uh, opportunities for growth, particularly around the issue of Palestine. Well, certainly the mood is changing as the uh, generational uh, transformation occurs dem demographically and, and so forth. But uh -huh. um, I, I think that we also have to keep in mind that the conditions both in the United States and around the world are also changing. And as such, I think that impacts the way that the, the way that the empire operates. I mean, something like global oil prices and global oil markets impacts everything. And so uh, my, my next question to you then is, to what extent does does foreign policy and, and issues of war and all of these other questions that we've been talking about, can that even play into a local race like the one that you're running? Or are these issues more just about your philosophy? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think, you know, I, I think it's twofold, just as you said. Um, I think it comes down to, you know, having a philosophy which centers equality, humanity and justice, um, and then being open about all of those things, even if you know, maybe it doesn't particularly relate to the specifics of your race. Um, but then again, on the flip side, you know, I think it does relate to the race, you know. So, um, you know, being able to there there have been uh, people in not only this race, but in other races that have said, you know, they're going to focus on domestic policy or they're not going to speak about foreign policy so much. You hear that a lot uh, when people are, are campaigning and running. Um, but again, I think it's impossible to disentangle the two. Um, just by with an understanding of how how budgets work, and and I, I, again I don't mean that only as a moral document, but literally how we um, prioritize our spending in this country, um, and so I think that you know it's it's really important to be able to talk about it honestly, and also you know like the, just being able to understand the links between uh, imperialism and racism at home, and how like th these again are things from a, a more philosophical perspective are not. You, you, they're not disentangled. They're all part of the same uh, the same structure and system, um, which is really centered on economic exploitation. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's important to discuss. And uh, yeah, it, it's definitely very important in the race. 
I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm also uh, very interested in hearing your perspectives on education and uh, public education. That's my 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 former life. I used to be a New oh. York City, yeah. I was a New York City public school teacher myself, so I'm very interested in hearing about that. Um, so before we go to the break, just let's just tease that question a little bit. I wanna I wanna just ask you generally, what did your experiences or what have your experiences teaching special education in the Bronx, what have they brought as far as political content to your ideological outlook? Oh, okay. Wow. What have they brought to my political content? Um, okay. I, well, okay. I, I'll, I'll answer first in terms of, of it, how it affected my general, the, the values I hold. Um, and I, I hopefully I'll be able to get into the political co- content uh, quickly. Um, you know, I, being in, in an underfunded school, I taught in a middle school that had metal detectors, which is really rare in New York. Metal detectors are normally only uh, reserved for high schools. Um, and that just sort of shows you and highlights the uh, over-policing that was done in, in this community, um, uh, the community and the campus that I was in. But, you know, I was taught in a school with metal detectors. It was notorious for, for violence and it had a lot of issues. But the amazing thing to me was just that how resilient the students were. Um, and, you know, maybe part of it was that it was something that was normalized, which is obviously really depressing. But honestly, throughout some of the most difficult challenges that you would expect, and even myself as a teacher, I'm sometimes thinking, man, I just need I need a mental health day tomorrow or, you know, I, I can I really do this? The students always came to school. They came to school with a smile on their face. They came to school with the goal of being able to learn something. And, you know, maybe some, not all of them necessarily had the complete toolkit to be able to, you know, meet the ambitious goals they had. Or, you know, maybe there were some structural things that prevented them from accessing all, all, of, the, all of the education and the curriculum that was offered to them. But it was just the most resilient community. Um, and I think how that translates to political content uh, is that, you know, we, we have to be able to, you know, it's a lot of times you hear these like sort of conservative critiques and, you know, like blaming culture and like these like cultural uh, pathological arguments and whatnot. But people really don't understand how resilient um, our, our communities are. Um, they don't understand the potential that exists in these communities and what's already being done in these in, in you know, the communities like the Bronx where I taught in already. Um, and I think on a political level, it just highlights the necessity for us to truly be investing in everyone. And we can't be casting anyone aside. And we can't allow the structures that have you know, made some of these communities disinvested, um, these communities excluded or politically marginalized, we can't allow those structures to persist. Um, so not only on a national level, but on a foreign, le- foreign policy level, we need to be able to look at the status quo and understand what interlocking systems of oppression exist and how can we actually dismantle them so we can harness the brilliance of everyone. The question that I was that I was getting at, and and I want to rephrase it so that we can uh, talk a little bit about economics, because one of the things that I learned as a teacher, uh, and this is just um, 2008 through 2012, so immediately, you know, with the with the Great Recession and uh, that period after it, with uh, Obama's first term, which was mm-hmm. also which was also the very beginning of Common Core. It was yeah. also the height of the boom for the charter school movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 
was a it was a moment of transformation in New York City public schools and really in most major cities, or at least a, a number of the major cities in this country. And one of the things that I learned was the inextricable link between the uh, undermining of public education and the drive for neoliberal privatization and the mm-hmm. private and the privatization movement and transforming education into a market, into a market for profit and being a teacher in New York and watching that all play out really taught me a lot about the nature of capitalism and about yep. the importance of questioning capitalism and to be to be blunt move to socialism yeah 100 percent I mean I I definitely experienced that in uh, in a extremely uh, uh, first person way because I actually transitioned from a public school and then I taught at a charter school for four years and so for me, that was more of a, a, a thing of just like being able to find a, a school that had an administration that would support me on a personal level. Um, I worked at a restorative justice uh, charter school that had like a social worker for every grade and, um, you know, all high needs kids and, and, and students that had low income. But it really highlighted to me, though, overall, in terms of the disinvestment from public education in general, how communities and students were really just pawns in a system that they had no say over. Um, and it was one of the most, it, it was just a very disheartening thing to be able to see. I was also there when Kathy Black was uh, put in as a chancellor for a bit. Um, and you really just see that the people who are making decisions uh, for the people, for individuals and communities that are the most affected and bear the brunt of those decisions are not at all aware of what's happening. Um, and it speaks to the, the necessity to deepen our democracy, not only socially, not only economically, not only politically, um, but to make sure that uh, our society is as inclusive as possible in harnessing the voices of everyone. So then before we take a quick break, I just want to ask you, if you were in Congress right now, let's say it's now early 2021, you've won your campaign. You, I mean, you've, you've won election to Congress. You're there and you have a chance to make a change to education policy. Uh, what kind of a change would you be looking to make? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, as the NAACP has already said, like, I think there has to be a moratorium on charter schools. Um, you know, while there are obviously discrete charter schools which are doing well and they have positive missions um and i'm not necessarily advocating for closing those schools but we've seen just the gross mismanagement that's happening uh at a level that is really un that we're incapable incapable of controlling um money being siphoned off students who are whose education is being interrupted uh because again people trying to make a profit off of what is supposed to be not only a public good a human right um, and so I think there has to, we have to do something to curtail that in this country because it's becoming um, a huge problem. You know, as a teacher, I think there, I, I have a lot of thoughts on a pedagogical level, um, but I know we're speaking on a, in a more macro sense. Uh, I think not, moratorium on charter schools, and I think we also need to delink uh, education funding from property taxes and be able to fully fund all schools uh, federally. Um, so I think those two things are really what's siphoning off the resources that are that need to be going to schools that to be that need to be going to public schools 
That's very well said. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the campaign for president, how you're viewing uh, that race shaping up, and a bunch of other topics in the time remaining. Uh, again, I would highly recommend you go to the website ondam4ny.com, read up on um, Ondam on his background and on some of his ideas, and uh, see if it if it uh, appeals to you. So anyway, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. I'm anti-imperial, anti-trust, anti-gun, shit won't bust, anti-corporate day, anti-my essence, anti-sporting them, anti-depressing, but I'm not pro-popping I'm pro-bocketing and pro-stopping them FBI operatives who professional that black man pounds and hand you a sentence that you can't pronounce. I'm also anti-narco, anti-vice, 911 wants the anti-Christ, they anti-social point Cause I'm anti the anti-nigga machine Proletarian, funkadelic, parliamentarian Pro-revolting in the 21st century Pro-running up in China saying fuck it all But bring the people with you, that's the protocol It's pretty joyful like jailbreaks The whole world is anti-United Snakes So check it out, anticipate the anti-venom And move your antibody to this revolution rhythm We gon' be fucking with them Pro-union, but most lost they bite Anti-motherfuckers crossing a strike Take a look around and be for or against But you can't do shit if you ride and we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Andam Gebregorgis. Uh, he is running for the 16th district here in New York. I know I just brutally slaughtered his last name, I'm sure. No, you did I, it amazing. I was, you did amazing. I was trying, <laughs> I was trying, but then I got into my head about it. Anyway, uh, so, uh, Bernie Sanders is obviously uh, looming large for anybody who's calling themselves a progressive running in a primary against a centrist Democrat. I don't know how Bernie wouldn't be looming large over that. So, uh, and of course, Ocasio-Cortez and some of the other personalities that we've seen emerge. Uh, so I guess my, my question to you then is, how are you viewing the national political race right now? I know that it's early. Uh, I mean, are you a fervent Bernie supporter? Are you somebody who is, uh, you know, supportive of Bernie, but critical? How do you view Bernie Sanders and or any other candidates in this campaign? Yeah. So um, 2004, uh, I'm just going to go back a little bit. In 2004, uh, I was in Alaska, actually working on a a Senate Democrat, Senate Democratic Senate uh, campaign uh, at the time of the election. And I voted for John Kerry just because obviously everything that Bush had done. I was like, we got to get him out. Um, and Kerry lost and I was devastated. And I, I had voted green in every New York election since then. Um, but Bernie was actually the, the, the first person who sort of was gonna, you know, basically going to bring me back to the Democratic Party um, and, and inspired not only me, but lots of people. So I, yes, that's a long way of me saying, yes, I, I am a, a Bernie supporter. Um, I'm very much intrigued by a lot of the proposals that Elizabeth Warren has been putting out. Um, but, you know, I, I came into this as a Bernie supporter. And, you know, the reason I ask that is not to try to make you into a campist or something, but rather to kind of get at this question of the of Bernie as something different, right? Because I've, I'm deeply critical of Bernie, I have to be honest. I've written, I wrote, mm-hmm. in 2016, I wrote some, some articles that were not so, you know, not so nice about, you know, Bernie and other people, because I, 
I saw Bernie as, uh, you know, essentially soft on imperialism and Uh uh, somebody who really didn't have the kind of politics that I wanted to see. But, of course, situations are what they are, and here we are now, and I don't support any particular candidate, but I do see a very clear and distinct difference between Bernie and every other candidate, including Elizabeth Warren, and I think that that difference is important. So I guess, again... The question really comes down to a question of capitalism, uh, Mm -hmm. because Bernie is the only candidate who openly and explicitly uh, questions capitalism. He may not call himself a communist. He uses democratic socialist or whatever, you know, the terminology. But Mm -hmm. unlike Elizabeth Warren, he is openly saying it. And I think that's pretty important. Yeah, I I, I definitely think it's important. Um, I think it's important also, you know, just on the first uh, on the primary level to be able to um, have an open discussion of ideas and not just be closed off from this sort of McCarthyist history um, and actually be able to honestly discuss what socialism and democratic socialism is. Um, And yeah, you know, I I think what we saw him do in 2016 in terms of some of the policies and programs that he was willing to put in place, I think it's very important. Um, I, but I would also say, you know, and add to it, and obviously it's, it's tied to the, to the democratic socialism um, sort of ideology. I think, he's, I think his biggest difference from everyone else is foreign policy as well. You know, um, obviously he maybe is not as left as, as we would like on all issues, um, but I think it's, it's just a clear difference between, between him and the others, even, and even from Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, well, he he doesn't have the Tulsi baggage. That's <laughs> yeah, a, that's, yeah. a, that's a separate issue. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, the thing with Bernie too is that uh, he doesn't have a a killer instinct when it comes to these issues. As far as I'm concerned, for me, one of the one of the real um, just kicking the kicking the kicking the teeth from Bernie was when he referred to. Uh, Hugo Chavez is a dead communist dictator. Uh, statements like that make me say, Bernie, seriously, please. But, but, but Bernie is, I think, doing something that we haven't seen in decades, decades. And I think this is critical because Bernie deserves to be criticized when he says and does things that are worthy of criticism. But at the same time, I think we also have to recognize what Bernie represents in this historical moment. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree with you more, and I think it's going to be uh, very interesting as we see things play as things play out. Um, I think that you know there's I haven't always been uh, necessarily a fan of how he has spoken about race and racial justice, so I'm going to be intrigued to see how how that again like plays out throughout the course of the next year. It's pretty wild to think that. You know, like we're having hearings on reparations and all the candidates uh, in the Democratic Party are, you know, feeling pressure to talk about reparations because I would never would have imagined that even two or three years ago. Absolutely. Um, I mean, wow. Absolutely. I had the same thought. Yeah. So it's it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. Um, I yeah, I mean, I, I want to see how things played play out when we're talking about like looking at maybe like the last four and really when they're honing in on their own issues, um, what it's going to look like. 
In the time we have remaining, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, a couple of issues um, internationally. Um, because of your background, uh, your family background, I, I, I know you do follow issues in Africa. Uh, you maybe don't consider yourself necessarily a foreign policy expert on all things Africa, but there are some major developments in Africa recently, including an uprising in Sudan that toppled a longtime uh, dictatorship there. Similarly, in Algeria and elsewhere, I'd like to get your uh, read on the situation, not necessarily in any of those specific countries, although if you'd like to speak to that, that would be wonderful as well, but more broadly about the U.S., the U.S. role in Africa, and how you view Africa uh, on the, let's call it, the geopolitical stage. Yeah, the the U.S. role in Africa. I mean, (laughs) the U.S. policy in Africa is a... uh, I mean, I, I don't even know I don't even know what one one would call it. I mean, we, we have Africom obviously, and Africa is the site of their militarization of the continent in you know achieving their so-called in quotes you know uh, aims against terror. But overall, I, I'm not sure what the U.S.'s policy in Africa is. It's a sort of almost like ad hoc rea- reactions to what they see China doing and. At the same time, you know, there is obviously like a lot of development assistance, but, you know, previously, at least with Trump, um, Bolton had wanted that development assistance to benefit the interests of Americans, which I don't even know. I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know how you I don't know how aid is tied to benefiting the interests of of America. Um, and <laughs> well, in Bolton's in Bolton's plan and in Trump's plan, when he when when Bolton announced it, it was it was essentially I'm going to take these balls of money and I'm going to throw them at American businessmen until they bring businesses to Africa, and then when they do, we're going to throw more money at them, and then when they take that money and leave, it's going to be totally cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 very much absurd, um, and it's you know I I think it is part and parcel with just sort of how Africa has been viewed historically as this, you know, monolith that, you know, it doesn't, it's not necessary to have sort of a uh, um, diversified and specialized plan when looking at it. It's all the same. And I think as you see the necessity to, 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 to work, I see, I think right now, as we see like the global, the global refugee crises that have been happening partially because of war, partially because of climate change and partially because of, you know, poverty and really climate change is actually affecting all of those. But like, you know, you you see this mass of people. Recently, there was just the article about how there were um, some uh, Central African refugees, I believe mostly from Congo and Cameroon, how they were uh, trapped at the Mexican border. And it's like you realize what these people like the stories that these people have traveling from Cameroon to Brazil and then walking from Brazil to to Mexico uh, at a chance to get into the United States, and you realize that um, it, we're just we're just dealing with a lot that the U.S. I don't think has the at least from a, a policy perspective, it's not they're not approaching it in a way where they're really like understanding and having an awareness of of what's going on on the continent. That like you know what's going on in Cameroon is not the same thing that's going on in Eritrea. It's not the same thing that's going on in Somalia. Which is not the same as going on in Nigeria, uh, where you know these are a lot of the refugee-producing states, and you know when you have a blanket policy, just looking at them all as Africans, um, you know that you 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 lose the nuance, you lose the specificity. But in general, like what's happening in Africa right now, I think we you know have obviously seen a lot of positive changes uh, in terms of 
potential for democracy with Algeria, with Sudan, um, and then you know also the crush the crushing uh, of dissent in Sudan also highlights America's influence, America's problematic influence in the region. You know how they prop up Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, who obviously have a vested interest in having a strong man in Sudan who's going to be able to keep the country, you know, not only do they not want democracy because they don't want people in their own uh, in their own countries to rise up, but, you know, they want to be able to control Sudan so they can get agricultural exports for their, um, you know, their arid climate so that they can, you know, say that they're controlling jihadists. But, um, you know, it really shows America's problematic influence in the region because those weapons that we're giving to Saudi Arabia and the UAE are being used to you know, kill remarkably amazing protesters who, you know, toppled uh, a terrible dictator. These are this is this is an amazing moment. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, America's complicity uh, with what's going on with Saudi Arabia and UAE uh, is, is making that problematic. Um, but, you know, I, I you know, it's pretty interesting, actually, on social media, because I've never seen like I have a lot of former students, uh, you know, like they follow me on 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 Facebook or Instagram. And so many of the young people who I don't know if they could pick out Sudan on the map have the the blue um, covering up like their profile photo. Um, so it's been actually pretty interesting to see how much Sudan is uh, getting played up in the press. I haven't really seen that happen uh, with an African issue uh, in, in a long, long time. I really I've, I don't know, maybe like the whole Joseph Coney thing when that viral video was going on. But well, it, the the social media aspect of what's happened in Sudan, and of course that's now a little bit more complicated as the more draconian poli- you know uh, policies are put in place. But uh, the social media aspect of it, to me, reminded me the most of um, uh, the early days of Tunisia's uprising in the early days of the Arab Spring. I mean, it, it definitely had that feel of this sort of decentralized and yet very much kind of coordinated uh, movement that that rather quickly eroded the base of support. And I think the similar the similarities are probably even more than that, where both countries had a, you know, a, essentially a dictator, but that dictator was not sort of an autocrat, but rather was sort of a representative of a broader kind of military yeah, no, coalition. I think, I think the way... To- so there are parallels in in one sense between the early part of this decade and now the end of this decade may be coming full circle. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. I, when I was talking about the social media piece, I was sort of I meant it in in terms of how like people in the West and in America were reacting to it. But I agree with you 100 percent how social media and technology has definitely um, changed the way in which uh, people are able to protest and organize. Um, and, you know, Sudan is really interesting because of the implications, you know, myself, and my family comes from Eritrea, the implication it has for Eritrea where. Um, you know, the Sudanese protesters were, you know, expressing a lot of solidarity with movements around the world as they were rising up against Bashir. And, you know, they had sometimes you would see these banners that said, you know, in solidarity with the detained prisoners of Eritrea. Um, And so, like, you know, as soon as they put out the as soon as they had the Internet blackout, um, you know, I really got worried. And because I, I, you know, I've seen in Eritrea, for example, how they used the world's worst Wi-Fi connection as a way to control the people um, and as a way to limit the ability for people to organize and rise up and have an awareness of what's going on outside of the country um, to inspire them. Um, but but yeah, you know, just in, in general, um, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity and hope for change 
uh, in, in African countries. Um, and I think the U.S. actually has a really positive role to play as China and Russia are becoming more involved. I mean, theoretically, we're supposed to be a country which, you know, values human rights. Um, so I think there's an opportunity to, you know, leverage economic interest to actually be able to promote um, a, a positive, <clears throat> excuse me, to be able to promote uh, promote human rights in the region. But again, like the problem is like this has always been done in an exploitative way. China is doing it in an exploitative way and, and not caring about the human rights aspect and, and keeping uh, countries in debt so that they'll do their bidding. Um, and everything has always been transactional uh, between within China and within Russia. So, you know, there is a third way possibility for America. Uh, but, you know, that I, I don't really have much optimism when it comes to, to them viewing Africa in that way. But who knows? Neocolonialism is a hell of a drug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're just about out of time, but um, I just want to give you a chance to speak to listeners. Tell them, um, you know, what you think maybe they, they could do if they wanted to support your campaign or campaigns similar to yours. What kind of advice you would give to young people who might be listening right now? Anything you want to say in the last couple of minutes? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, first of all, yeah, again, as I said, glad to be here. Um, glad to be on the show and, and, and chat with you. Um, you know, in, in our campaign in District 16, uh, as I mentioned before, we're one of the most uh, diverse districts that you're going to see socioeconomically, racially. Um, and we really just highlight the widening gap that's, that's happening in America. In my home city of Mount Vernon, um, the median household income is the same as the median property taxes on homes next door in Bronxville. Um, and so like just by looking at these two cities uh, or two one city and one village juxtaposed together, um, you're really able to see just really the, the lengths and the degree to which we have to work and continue to fight here in America to actually have uh, equality and fairness. You know, overall, in terms of foreign policy and in how that links with domestic policy, the representative that we have right now has diverted billions of dollars, billions of dollars uh, of resources and money that could be going to underserved communities like mine, like where I taught in the Bronx. And he's diverted that to war, to prisons. Um, and it's just something that you know we can't stand for anymore. We've already seen income inequality widening to a degree in which the 1% control so much of the wealth relative to what they did before in the 1970s that you know, you're, you're really seeing people who are not willing to take it anymore. And then you couple that with the threat of climate extinction. You couple that with us being at war um, for every year of my students' lives post 9-11. Um, and it's it's necessary for, for, uh, for change. And I'm very much inspired by what happened in 2018. Um, I hope to be able to continue that change. I'm optimistic that by working with the communities uh, building coalitions and mobilizing people who have historically been excluded and marginalized from the political process that were able to do that. You know, these turnout rates we're having in these elections, only 10 percent, 10 percent. And that's even lower in uh, communities with low income and, and communities that are largely people of color. So we have an opportunity to do that. You know, we have to get out. We have to be able to engage with people and let them know about why the necessity for change uh, has to happen right now. I mean, this change had to have happened yesterday. But it ha didn't happen yesterday, so we can't wait any longer. Um, we have to do it right now. And people can help out by going to ondomforny.com, uh, reading up on our platform, uh, communicating with us, engaging with us, letting us know your concerns. Um, this is participatory. We're trying to, we're trying to engage with uh, communities as much as possible. Um, 
We also understand, uh, unfortunately, the way that money works in politics, um, and we are not supported by the establishment in any way. Um, so we need the support of the people. So please click that donate button and anything that you're capable and, and able to give, please do. Um, we really do support it. And if you're ever in New York, Southern Westchester or the North Bronx, um, definitely come on out to volunteer or just hit us up to chat. Very well said. I will do that next time I'm uptown, if I can. And um, Andam Gebregorgis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, again, go to those websites, follow him on Twitter. This is the kind of politics we're really looking for. We want anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist people ready to go for the throat of these sons of bitches. So, Andam, thank you so much again. Listeners, thank you as always. We will chat again real soon. <laughs>